Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time it is, wherever you are tuning in. Thank you so much for joining me today for this very special presentation of the life of the Buddha. Now today I'm going to bring this group back into time, roughly 2,500 years ago. We'll talk about the birth of Siddhartha Gautama, who became the Buddha, the historical Buddha. Then I will talk about uh, some of the events that led him uh, to that event where he became enlightened. Then I will deliver some of the earliest teachings that the Buddha gave. I'll unpack those and we'll see how those teachings can be applicable to our everyday life experience. So without further ado, I'm going to jump right in. That's quite a lot of ground to cover in just an hour. So it all starts with the birth of Siddhartha Gautama. Now, uh, this begins with his mother, Queen Maya, the queen of Kapilavatsu in Northern India. And queen Maya was having a dream one night. And in this dream, she saw a beautiful, huge white elephant with six tusks. And this elephant was carrying in its trunk a lotus flower. And the elephant leaned forward to Queen Maya in the dream and placed the lotus flower in the queen's side. And then without warning, the elephant leaned back and lunged at the queen and entered into her side in the same place that the elephant had placed the lotus flower. Now it's said that the queen woke up hearing rapturous music. And of course, she went to her husband, King Sodananda, and said, King, my husband, I've had this amazing dream. I woke up hearing this incredible, beautiful music. What does this mean? And so, as would have been customary for that day in northern India, the king sent for the seers and sages of the area to see if they could interpret this dream. Well, this didn't take them very long, actually. They said, King, your queen is pregnant. Nine months later, Queen Maya was very pregnant. And so, again, according to the customary traditions of Northern India, Queen Maya was traveling by convoy from her home in Kapilavatsu to the home of her parents. And the tradition was that the firstborn would be uh, born at the queen, the mother's, queen's mother. So they're traveling back to, to the home of Queen Maya's parents where Queen Maya then looks out at what is now Lumbini Gardens in Lumbini in southern Nepal and is taken by the majesty of this huge tree, this Ahsoka tree. And she's so hypnotized by this tree that she actually stops the entire convoy. She says, you know, stop, stop, I have to be with this tree. And under sort of a spell, Queen Maya uh, leaves their carriage 
and wanders to this tree where the queen swoons. And legend has it that the tree leaned forward and caught the queen in her branches. And as she swooned into the tree's branches, the baby Siddhartha emerged from the queen's side in the exact place where the elephant had placed the lotus and then entered into the queen. Siddhartha emerges from her side. Now, Siddhartha lands on his two feet and takes seven steps through Lumbini Gardens, uh, hand in hand with the queen. They walk hand in hand through the Lumbini Garden like that. Now, this apparently caused the queen no pain. However, uh, a week later, uh, Queen Maya died uh, suddenly. And that is uh, meant to be Siddhartha's first encounter with suffering, which becomes quite integral to the story as the story unfolds. So that is the birth of Siddhartha Gotama, prince of the Shakya clan in Kapilavatsu, India, which is now Lumbini in southern Nepal, uh, 2,500 years ago. Uh, by the way, all of the slides here that I'm using for this presentation are my own photographs or photographs of artwork. The previous slide uh, was a, a painting that was done in uh, one of the temples in Lumbini. This is actually the Queen Maya Temple uh, in Nepal, uh, in Lumbini, Nepal. Definitely worth visiting if you get to Nepal. Uh, do go to Lumbini. Uh, there's 27 or 28 active monasteries in Lumbini, Nepal right now. So it's an extraordinary place to visit. Now, understandable, this uh, would have caused a great deal of excitement for King Sodananda. This is the birth of his firstborn son. Wow. Right, and this is no, uh, no trivial matter for a king. So again, he calls the seers and sages of Northern India to be brought forth to see if they can tell him anything about uh, what the firstborn would bring to Kapilavatsu or to bring to his family. And so these seers and sages take Siddhartha in the back room and they're studying with him and they're, they're meditating, him, uh, meditating on him and studying on him and so forth. And a few hours later, they come out of the back room and they're glowing and smiling and laughing. So the king figures this must be good news. So they, the king Sodananda says to the wise men, please, please tell me what is it that you've seen? What, what does this baby's birth have to do for my body, uh, for my, uh, for my um, kingdom. They say, King, this is really great news. Your son will be a very, very powerful emperor. So powerful that he will eventually unite all of the 18 kingdoms of India. See, at that time, India was divided by 18 kingdoms. Or... He might be a monk. <laughs> As you can imagine, that last part of the prophecy greatly troubled the king. And so he thought to himself, well, how can I encourage my son, Siddhartha, 
to follow in my footsteps and to become this greatly admired and extraordinarily powerful emperor. How can I encourage that? And so the next day he brought his advisors together and asked them that same question. And they said, oh, King, you must not allow your son to experience any suffering. You must coddle him and groom him for the throne. Keep him sheltered from the pain and suffering of life. And so the king did just that, actually. He coddled him, he groomed him for the throne. When Siddhartha was three years old, it said that he had toys uh, piled to the ceiling. There were rooms filled with his toys and playthings. Uh, when Siddhartha grew to be the uh, age to be educated, uh, Siddhartha and Queen Maya sent for the best teachers and educators throughout the lands to be brought forth to the palace. And Siddhartha was very highly educated from a very young age in all of the sciences, philosophies, arts, and music. It's known that he was a flautist uh, and a harpist. Uh, definitely a flautist. I'm not sure about the harp. <laughs> there, are, there are records, uh, uh, stories, and legends of him playing flute. Uh, he was uh, very keen on the religions of the day, also political science, uh, astrology and astronomy and so forth. So very highly educated, mathematics. And his teachers always reported back to Siddhartha and Queen Maya that Siddhartha was top of his class. He was uh, said to be a brilliant, brilliant young man and a scholar uh, and very sharp intellect. Something of a child prodigy, if you will. When Siddhartha turned uh, 18, his parents sent for wine and women and fine foods to entertain Siddhartha, not only on his birthday, but every day after. And it said that Siddhartha was so inundated with pleasure that the last thing he ever thought about was leaving the palace grounds. He never even entertained the idea. But when Siddhartha turned around 28 or so, he did start to grow restless. And he started to wonder what lie outside of the palace grounds. And so that seed of curiosity started to grow within him. But just around that same time, he married a beautiful Indian princess named Yasodhara. There are many, many touching stories of Siddhartha and Yasodhara. It said that they were never seen uh, throughout the palace grounds without each other. They were always with each other by their sides. Now, I'll just tell my favorite story of Siddhartha and Yasodhara. Uh, one evening, they're on uh, the rooftop of one of the buildings in the palace grounds, and they're watching the sunset. And they're in embrace. And they're so enthralled with each other that they roll off of the top of the roof and they land in the bushes and they never even notice the fall. 
So young couple, very, very much in love. But when Siddhartha turns 29, that curiosity about what lie outside the palace grounds uh, grew and grew and grew until he couldn't deny it any longer. So one morning he grabs the stable boy, his best friend at the time, named Chana. And he says, come on Chana, let's go see what lie outside the palace grounds. And so Siddhartha and Chana end up leaving the palace grounds. They start exploring Kapalavatsu. Now a little bit of background on Kapalavatsu at this time. Kapalavatsu uh, was a large economic hub of Northern India. It was right on the Silk Road. So it would have been a bustle of energetic activity, of trade. Uh, and so this would have been uh, a new experience for Siddhartha, having been sheltered in the palace grounds. He would have not really experienced anything like the level of energy and interaction uh, that he would have experienced this day. So Siddhartha and Chana are walking down the street and across the street, uh, Siddhartha sees a very old man hobbled over uh, on a cane, really uh, writhing in pain, clearly uh, a struggle to take every step. Siddhartha grabs Chana by the arm and he says, hey Chana, what's that? And Chana says, well, that's a man suffering with extreme decrepitude. Siddhartha says, well, does this happen to everyone? Chana says, well, if you live long enough, yes, that does happen to everyone. Yeah, sure. Siddhartha looks a little distraught. He says, Chana, could that happen to me? And Chana says, yeah, sure, that definitely could happen to you someday. Well, this irritates Siddhartha a little bit, but nevertheless, they're out uh, exploring for the first time this bustling city, so they continue on their journey. And they're walking towards the marketplace in the center of town. But before long, in their journey, they come across a man lying in the gutter, lying in his own excrement and vomit. Siddhartha again grabs Chana by the arm and he says, hey Chana, what, what's that? Well, that's a man suffering with extreme disease and dysentery, says Chana. Does this happen to everyone? asked the Buddha. And Chana says, well, we're all susceptible to the experiences of disease and dysentery, sure. So this might happen to me, asked the Buddha, asked Siddhartha. And Chana says, sure, that could happen to you someday, yeah, sure. Well, now Siddhartha is really irritated. He's irked. We start to see that his worldview is starting to shift. Things are not what he thought they were. Nevertheless, they're out having a good time. They continue on their journey. 
They get to the marketplace, they take their afternoon meal. And then as they're leaving the marketplace, they come across a funeral procession. There's a group of people sobbing and weeping and behind that group, uh, there's one man carrying one side of a stretcher and six feet behind that person, another man carrying another side of the stretcher. And in between those two men lie a dead body, a corpse. The corpse is purple and rotting and slightly decayed. Saratha grabs Chana by the arm and he says, Chana, what's that? And Chana says, well, that's a dead man. That, that's a corpse. Does that happen to everyone? Asked Siddhartha. And Chana kind of chuckles. He says, well, yes, that definitely does happen to everyone. So that will happen to me someday? Asked Siddhartha. Chana says, yes, that definitely will happen to you someday. Well, now Siddhartha is greatly upset. And he begins to ask himself, what is this life that on one hand holds so much joy and laughter and luxury and peace and so much suffering, so much pain? And how can we reconcile those two? How can we live a life that has space for, for both of those experiences equally. What is this suffering? Siddhartha begins to ask. Now that evening, Siddhartha and Chana did return to the palace grounds, but Siddhartha has changed. His worldview has shifted. Things are different for him now. He can't go back to seeing the world as he did before. He returns to Yasodhara. And shortly after this excursion into the palace grounds, Yasodhara gives birth to their first baby son, who Siddhartha names Rahu. Now, in Pali, the language of the Buddha, Raul means fettered. So he actually names his son that which will keep me attached, fettered. Kind of a foreshadowing for the events that might be on the horizon. Because this question, what is suffering, becomes known as Siddhartha's great question. And in some of the texts, it says that it felt for Siddhartha as if he'd swallowed a hot piece of coal and was trying to regurgitate it. You can kind of imagine what that might have felt like. Some of the other texts, it says that it felt as if Siddhartha had an arrow piercing his heart. Day in, day out, mulling over this question about suffering, about how we can live with all of this suffering and all of this joy, how to reconcile those. Days and weeks and months go by, still brewing, still this storm cultivating in the heart of Siddhartha. What is suffering? 
finally this storm, this pain in Siddhartha's heart, this existential pain becomes overbearing. And one night it said in the palace, he goes to Yasodhara's room, Raul is sleeping on her shoulder. And he looks in and he thinks to himself, if I kiss them goodbye now, I will never leave. And he leaves the palace ground. It said that Siddhartha leaves home for homelessness. Now, a little bit of background about that. Uh, this wasn't an uncommon decision in Northern India at this time. There were many men and women uh, leaving their home and choosing homelessness as a way of renunciation, as a way of beginning or marking uh, their dedication to a spiritual path. Uh, at this time in Northern India, there were many, many uh, existential questions. There was a whole culture around questions such as, what is life? What is suffering? Uh, is there a God or not a God? Is there life after death? And so all of these kind of existential questions were in the forefront of many people's mind in Northern India. So Siddhartha would have had good company on his journey into homelessness. And on the first day out of the palace grounds, he encounters a yogi meditating underneath a shade tree near the side of the road. And he looks at this person and says, wow, they're radiant and glowing. Their skin is so fair. I wonder who that person's teacher is. So Siddhartha approaches this yogi underneath the tree. He asks this question, who is your teacher? The man says, I study underneath this famous yogi. He has many, many students. His ashram is about a week's journey on this road. Continue on the road for about a week and you will come to this ashram. Speak to him and he will take you as a student. So Siddhartha does just this actually. And he, he enters into tutorship under this very, very powerful yogi. Now, keeping in mind that Siddhartha has already been cited as something of a prodigy, uh, as a genius by many of his teachers as a young person. Uh, he has this burning question in his heart, searing a hole in his heart about suffering, right? So he enters into this study with this yogi and it's said that within six months, Siddhartha mastered all of the teachings that this teacher had to offer, all of the uh, yogic postures, all of the subtle meditation states, and very high, very advanced types of uh, trance-like meditation states, very subtle body practices. But regardless of how advanced these practices were and how studious and advanced Siddhartha was, these practices didn't lead Siddhartha to the answers to the question, the answers that he was looking for. They didn't bring him to the end of suffering. In fact, 
all of these advanced states had a beginning, a, a, a middle, and an end. They were all transient. And they saw, he saw that these states too could also lead to suffering because we can become attached to them. And because they arise and pass, they also can be, uh, can lead one into suffering. So Siddhartha leaves this teacher after six months of training. He walks another week or so on the road and he comes to another ashram where there's another very famous, very powerful meditation teacher. Much to the same results. He enters into a study uh, with this teacher at this ashram uh, and within six months he masters everything that that teacher had to offer. Again, very deep meditation practices, very subtle, very fine, trance-like states, uh, bringing Siddhartha to uh, the very cusp of consciousness. But again, they were just experiences that would have a beginning in time, an existence in time, and an ending in time. And so Siddhartha said, these aren't the answers that I'm looking for either. And so he went to that teacher and he said, I'm leaving here. And that teacher actually saw something very powerful in Siddhartha, so much so that he invited Siddhartha to, to help him teach. Siddhartha declined. He said, no, this isn't the practice that's right for me. So Siddhartha leaves that ashram. You can admit, you can probably um, reckon, I guess, that Siddhartha was pretty distraught at this time, having left two ashrams uh, after over a year of training now, still not coming to these answers that he's looking for. And so now he's traveling again alone on the path, and he comes across a band of five ascetics. Now, if you're not familiar with the practice of asceticism, asceticism is the idea that the human body holds all of the suffering that we can ever encounter. And if we can somehow beat our body into submission, we can transcend our suffering. That's the idea of asceticism. And Siddhartha thinks to himself, well, I've lived in the lap of luxury all my life in the palace grounds. That was one extreme. Perhaps if I bring myself to the other extreme of that, I can find the answers to suffering that I'm looking for. So with that in mind, Siddhartha enters into a practice of extreme asceticism. Now among many mortification practices that Siddhartha engaged in, uh, one of the more notable was starvation. And it said that over the course of six years, every day he ate one grain of rice, one grain of sesame salt, and one drop of water each day for six years. And here you can see uh, a sculpture of Siddhartha. This was a photo that I took in Lumbini Gardens in Nepal, uh, depicting Siddhartha at the height of his practice of asceticism, literally a skeleton with a thin sheet of skin draped over the bones, a stark 
impression of a man's deep, deep drive and really deep need almost to find the answer to suffering that he's looking for. Which brings me to the story of the broken lute. So the story unfolds as follows. One afternoon, it's about 1, 1.30 in the afternoon, Siddhartha and the other five ascetics are meditating on the river bank. Uh, sweat is pouring out of Siddhartha's skin. It's really one in the afternoon on a hot summer day in India. Sun beaming down on him. Uh, sweat just dripping off the man. And he's deep in this meditation absorption, one of the meditations that he would have learned at this ashram. His eyes are closed and he hears from this meditation, he hears dum 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 twang. When he hears the twang, his eyes open and he sees in front of him on the river, there's a man rowing a boat and there's a woman tuning a lute. And the, the twang was the string of the lute breaking. This brings Siddhartha to an insight. He thinks to himself, if the lute is tuned too tight, the string will break. But if it's tuned too loose, the instrument won't play. And so he looks down at his starving body and he thinks, wow, I've really tightened myself too tight and I'm about to break. And so with that, he stands up dizzy from both heat exhaustion and starvation. And he stumbles about a hundred yards over to a shade tree where Siddhartha passes out. Now, a few hours later, perhaps, Siddhartha's eyes open and he sees standing over him a young farm girl holding a bowl of rice pudding. And this is Sujata. And Sujata leans over Siddhartha when she sees his eyes open and she offers him the rice pudding. She says, here, eat. You, you must eat something. Siddhartha remembers the insight he had about being too tight. He says, right, I need to eat. So he takes the rice pudding from Sujata. Now, it's kind of a touching exchange there, actually. Uh, Sujata keeps putting the rice pudding back in her bag and he keeps asking for more. Kind of a way of illustrating that he's understood that he needs to nourish himself back to health. He needs this strength. Sujata also recognizes something special in Siddhartha. She recognizes that he's already something of a spiritual master. So after their exchange underneath the shade tree, uh, Sujata agrees to return every day uh, with more nourishment, more food. So eventually Siddhartha is able to regain his strength and return back to the path, finding the answers to suffering. So Siddhartha does regain his strength and he heads back uh, on the path and he ends up 
in northeastern, I'm sorry, yeah, northeastern India at a place called Bodh Gaya. And he arrives in Bodh Gaya, it's kind of a, a cooler, warm day in India. <laughs> and he sits underneath what's now known as a Bodhi tree. It's a very large shade tree and he sits there and there's a nice gentle breeze blowing later in the afternoon. And he makes a dedication. He says to himself, I won't leave this tree until I have attained the answers to suffering that I'm looking for. And with that, he enters into a meditation. Now, I don't have time to guide a full meditation practice that the meditation that Siddhartha was doing here. I do have many videos on my YouTube channel or on Instagram or on my website. Uh, if you go to any of the Such Sweet Thunder practices, uh, those are the practices that are based on the type of meditation uh, that Siddhartha was doing on the night of his enlightenment. So for here, for the sake of the story, I'll just kind of touch on the practice and outline it a bit. So Siddhartha enters into this meditation practice. And he begins by watching his thoughts. Feelings, sensations, and emotions. And actually he starts with the body. He starts by bringing his awareness and attention to the sensations of the body. He starts to notice something really kind of, well, something he hadn't seen before. He notices that there's an itch that arises and it arises out of nothing. It stays for a while. If he doesn't indulge it, it fades back into nothing. Interesting. Same thing with an ache. There might be an ache in the back or an ache in the shoulder. It arises, the sensation arises, it stays for a while and fades back into nothing. Interesting. So my, all of my sensations arise out of nothing, stay for a while, and then fade. Well, then Siddhartha began to look at his thoughts. And he saw that a thought will arise seemingly out of nothing, stay for a while, and then fade back into nothing. Same pattern. And he also began noticing his emotions and feelings. Maybe perhaps a little bit of sadness from missing his wife and child. Or a little bit of anger arising from failing as a yogi and as an ascetic. That ar arising emotion stays for a while, pretends to be all important, and then fades back into nothing. And so this brings Siddhartha to another great insight. We see this coming uh, time and time again throughout the teachings uh, after Siddhartha's enlightenment. This is whatever arises ceases. And the way it's written in the text, if it's of the nature of being born, it's of the nature of dying. So he's having these insights. Let's look ahead. Right. So now 
during this meditation underneath the Bodhi tree, after he's having these insights on whatever arises, passes, uh, Mara shows up. Now Mara is known as the demon of death. Some text translates Mara as Antika. Antika means the one who creates limits. But when we strip away the mythology and the cosmology of Buddhism, we can clearly see that Mara is representative of the Buddha's own psychological shadow material, his own uh, limiting beliefs and uh, thoughts about himself and the world like that. It's all of his repressive uh, material. And what's really interesting, talk a little bit about Mara here, is that although Mara uh, plagues the Buddha, the night of his enlightenment, as we're about to see, uh, Mara continues to show up throughout the Buddha's life, uh, even after he awakens. And so Mara is um, a great instrument of pointing out Siddhartha and the Buddha's humanity. Okay, more about that later perhaps. So Mara shows up, Antika, the one who creates limits, this fierce demon. And here Siddhartha is meditating underneath the Bodhi tree, following his breath, watching his sensations and thoughts and emotions. Mara shows up as this huge uh, 30 story tall demon with three eyes and bulging muscles dancing around in front of Siddhartha. This is known in the text as the three temptations of Mara. Those temptations are desire, anger and conflict, and need for approval. Now keep in mind, this is all symbolic of Siddhartha's own shadow. Make that very important. Okay, so Siddhartha, uh, sorry, Mara's first temptation is desire. And so here he is, 30 stories tall, this huge purple demon. And without hesitation, Mara puts his own arm into his mouth and draws out his arm and on his unfurled tongue leaps three scantily clad young dancing girls. So this is the temptation of desire. And these scantily clad young dancing girls, they're said to be the daughters of Mara. And they're caressing Siddhartha's face and massaging his shoulders and basically tempting him with all sorts of uh, desires of the flesh, if you will. And it says in the text, it's quite humorous, that you would have to be a eunuch not to feel something from this uh, exchange that was happening here underneath this Bodhi tree. However, we know Siddhartha was not a eunuch. He was very much a human being. And it says in the text that he saw his desire. But keep in mind that Siddhartha has just had this insight that whatever arises passes. So he knows that this too is just another movement in his mind, just like the sensations of his body, just like the thoughts in his mind, just like the uh, emotions and feelings, this too will arise and pass. So he maintains his awareness of his breath, of his body, of the present moment, and 
He doesn't push the Mara's daughters away. He doesn't cling to them. He doesn't entertain them in any way, shape, or form. But he maintains the present moment awareness. And eventually they do fade away. But Mara's not done yet. And next we see Mara's second temptation, anger and conflict. Now this arises for Siddhartha as Mara, again, this 30-story tall, huge demon with these three eyes, purple and bulging muscles. But now Mara shows up roughly, I don't know, 300 or 400 yards back away from the Bodhi tree. So several football fields, if you will. But he's still dancing menacingly and, you know, uh, just growling and fierce. But in front of Mara, is a huge army of demons. And Siddhartha can hear the war drums, doom, 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 doom. And he can smell the oil from the flaming arrows. And he hears the bows being drawn back and the arrows being launched into the air. And as the arrows, these flaming arrows are arcing up and pointing down towards Siddhartha, Siddhartha raises his chest and he says, come, let me learn from you. And as soon as Siddhartha says, let me learn from you, the flaming arrows turn into roses and they drop at his knees. And there's enough flaming arrows that they pile up at his knees, creating something of a throne where it looks as if Siddhartha is mounted a throne because there's all of these burnt roses around Siddhartha's knees there. Beautiful imagery and a really modern lesson in how we can work with our own shadow, right? First temptation to maintain awareness of the present moment, recognizing that the thoughts, feelings, and emotions of the shadow will arise and pass. The second one, opening our heart. Let me learn from you. What is it that you're here to teach me? That open inquiry into our condition. I'm often surprised at how contemporary these teachings are. So now things get pretty quiet again. Mara has faded. And Siddhartha has come back to the present moment, uh, meditating on the breath, the body, the present moment experience. And he has seen now that everything that arises passes, and he's sitting with this insight, really letting that become a part of his uh, reality. And everything that he turns his attention to, all of nature, goes through these cycles. The body, goes through cycles of recycling cells and, and blood and air. It's all moving through. And so finally, he points his awareness and attention uh, into his eye, into being a separate identity. Now it says in the text here that because of all of the years of meditating as an ascetic, 
for years of mastering these subtle practices as a yogi. He also, it's known that he studied meditation as a child and through his youth. And to these, this, well, in some of the texts, it says seven days under the Bodhi tree, and some days it just says one. And to this extraordinary practice under the Bodhi tree, regardless of the time, his mind, Siddhartha's mind, became, it says, like the edge of a diamond, became so sharp and so precise and so focused that it could cut through any sort of distraction, any sort of habitual pattern that would have arisen. Siddhartha could see right through it immediately with this focused, sharpened awareness and attention. And with that heightened, sharpened sense of awareness and attention, he brought that to bear down on being a separate permanent I. And it says that the reason he did that was because he was looking for ground. He thought, well, everything else is passing. Everything else is subject to arising and passing. Maybe this I that I feel, that feels so permanent and solid and fixed, maybe that's somewhere of refuge. Maybe that's somewhere I can rest. So when he turned his awareness to that sense of being an I, he saw that that too was a state of passing. That there is no solid, fixed, permanent I. It's a really an I that exists based on stories that we tell ourselves, on memories which fluctuate with time and so forth. So I saw the transient nature of even the I. His sense of being a permanent, fixed, separate I separate from anything other out there, he saw that crumble. And that created a sense of we, a unity between himself and everything else. <clears throat> now, as soon as that happens, Mara shows up again, of course. This is known as the third temptation of Mara. This is the need for approval. So Mara shows up, but now Mara is an elderly man dressed all in white. And he looks at Siddhartha, again, with that menacing look that he had as a, as a demon. And he says, Siddhartha, who are you? What gives you the right to, to sit here and meditate like this? Don't you have a family to take care of? Don't you have a kingdom to run? What's, what's wrong with you? What's the matter with you? What are you doing here? And Siddhartha then leaned forward and he touched the earth. And he said to Mara, the earth is my witness. I need no approval. And after he made that statement, the earth started shaking and the tree behind him, leaves fell on top of the roses, creating an even higher throne for Siddhartha to sit on. And Siddhartha looks up at the night sky and he sees the star in the night sky. And he says, looking at the star, I and all beings at once awaken in this moment. <clears throat> now I just wanna unpack that there for a moment. Uh, clearly he's illustrating that he doesn't need Mara's approval. Uh, he says, the earth is my witness. 
so clearly he has shed that aspect of his shadow. And in fact, because his ego, he saw through in that moment of awakening, he saw that that ego is a transient passing experience, not a fixed I, that the question really didn't even make sense for Siddhartha. Who are you? What? I'm nobody. And in being nobody, in fact, he was everybody. But that's another story. That's another teaching for another time. Then he says, I and all beings awaken at once in this moment. He wasn't saying that, well, now that I've awakened to this, uh, to this reality, this truth, that we're all, in fact, transient beings, including this, what we think of as a separate I. Uh, now that I've awakened to that, that we're all awakened to it automatically. Although that would have been nice and probably saved us a lot of trouble. Uh, no, but what he was saying was that uh, I'm not special. He was pointing at his own humanity. So basically, if I can awaken to this, anybody can awaken to this. All beings can have a similar insight as the one I have had. Beautiful, uh, beautiful uh, phrase there. Again, he's had this amazing enlightenment experience, but maintaining that humanity at the same time. So I just want to read a little bit of a passage here. Um, this is the Buddha recounting his awakening experience. These are the Buddha's own words here. This Dharma that I've reached is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and excellent, not confined by thought, subtle and sensed by the wise. But people love their place. They delight and revel in their place. It will be hard for people who delight and revel in their place to see this ground, the this conditionality, conditioned arising. And also hard to see this ground, the stilling of inclinations, the relinquishing of bias, the fading away of reactivity, desirelessness, ceasing, nirvana. Were I to teach this Dhamma, others would not understand me, and that would be both tiring and vexing for me. People who are colored by attachment, covered by darkness, will not see what goes against the stream. Subtle, deep, hard to see and fine. Upon thinking this over, I have inclined to inaction. Now the Buddha, Siddhartha, now he's the Buddha, he says a lot there in just a page and a half. So I'll unpack a little bit of that. So he says, uh, well, basically he points to his insight there being twofold the insight of conditioned arising and the insight of letting go of our reactivity. So conditioned arising is the idea that we're, everything is connected, that this moment has come about from 
millions and millions and millions and millions of other moments going back to the beginning of time, before the beginning of time. And this moment right now, regardless of where you are, what you're doing, will predicate millions and millions and millions and millions of other moments for millions and millions of other beings. Time immemorial. Everything is connected. The Buddha often, not often, but uh, was said to have given a sermon about a flower where he held up a flower. And one of his students looked at the flower and smiled. This was a, a speechless sermon. There were no words exchanged. And it said that the smile in the student was there because the Buddha was pointing at how you, when you held up the flower, you not only saw the flower, you could also see the clouds and the rain which came from those clouds to nourish the flower. And you saw the soil and you saw the worms which irrigated the soil, which allowed the flower to grow. And you saw the fertilizer and you saw all of the farmers that irrigated that area before the flower was, was brought forth. You also saw the incredible nervous system, the human nervous system, which was perceiving the colors and the odors of the flower. And through that, seeing the evolution of the human species from the beginning of evolutionary time. Before we were reptiles, came coming up from the ocean, being born throughout time to this point, holding the flower, and then also seeing all of the future evolutionary steps to the end of time for the human species, all by looking at one flower. And there's more and more and more it goes on infinitum, infinitum. <laughs> That's conditioned arising. And so when we recognize that, it's very difficult to judge somebody because when we judge somebody, let's say we judge somebody negatively, we see somebody doing uh, something that we don't like. We judge them by that one minute in time. We don't recognize that that person is actually a complex, a multitude of experiences and thoughts and behaviors and attitudes and values and beliefs. And so when we really hold the, this conditioned arising, we start to see everything and every experience in that continuum. Letting go of reactivity. And this is pointing at our clinging. And he says, people love their place. We delight and revel in our place. He says, this is going to be a problem because we cling to that place as if it was a permanent fixed place. Again, pointing at that conditioned arising. The places that I love, for example, I'm Chris, uh, I'm a teacher, I'm a poet, a writer, a musician, a traveler. Uh, I love cats, I like to cook, I like to read, I like to exercise. These are all the places that we love to delight and revel in. Uh, a politician, liberal, conservative, a Buddhist, a Christian, uh, a Hebrew, uh, Kabbalah, 
whatever it is, those are the places, the typical places, a brother, a sister, a father, a mother, a son, a daughter, that we delight and revel in. And we fixate on that. That we think that those places give us a ground. Those places are too transitory. They come, they stay for a while, and they fade away. And this brings us to reactivity. We suffer when those places fade, and we react with you know, laughter and bliss when they're here. We cling to them. That's the reactivity. We cling to these places when they provide us with what we want, and we suffer when they fade. And the Buddha saw this very clearly. He said, people will have to let go of this. But people love their place. And so he saw that these teachings go against the stream, he says. The stream of our inclinations, the stream of our habits. In fact, the stream of our instinct. It's, our, it's in our DNA to strive for a solid fixed ground. That's in our very being. That's arguably why we've survived the Darwinian struggle as long as we have is we have that inclination, we have that desire to, to rest in a solid, fixed, permanent, safe place, a stationary place. The Buddha saw that that stationary place doesn't actually exist. Well, that sounds like bad news, right? But the good news is that we can find home and safety in the constant state of change. And that's what these teachings are all bringing one to, is that that is cultivating the ability to rest in the state of ever change. Now the Buddha saw that this was a tall task. <laughs> and he says, people won't understand this and I'll be tired and vexed, he says. Another beautiful phrase on how the Buddha pointing at his own humanity. Here he is, this enlightened being, and he's, you know, contemplating not teaching, because it'll be tiring and vexing for him, he says. So he says, actually, I'm not going to teach. It's, it's pointless. And that's his, actually, that's his decision. He says, I'm just going to spend the rest of my days in the jungle as a hermit, rolling and reveling in the ecstasy of enlightenment. But luckily for us, Brahman shows up. Now, Brahman in Hindu lore, Hindu, Hindu belief system, is the god of creation. Now, there's a lot more to it. That's kind of a very simplified version of my introduction uh, to Brahman. But let's just say he's, let's just sum it up as he is the god of creation, because that really makes sense for this presentation. Because here the Buddha is hemming and hawing, I'm bringing these teachings forth. And here comes the God of creation to help the Buddha create a teaching out of this visceral enlightenment experience. The Buddha needs some encouragement, some help verbalizing what he's come to see as this twofold insight. So it says in the text, I love this phrase, it says, Brahman could read my mind the Buddha's thinking, and it says, and he showed up as quickly as a strong man, 
a strong man will flex his outstretched arm. So, <laughs> and Brahman shows up. I, I like that. It's kind of a fun visualization. Brahman's there and he says, Oh, Buddha, you must go and teach. He says, there are little beings with sand in their eyes. And if you bring these teachings of the Dharma that you have seen, they will be able to wash the sand from their eyes and they will suffer no more. So please go forth and teach. And so from that encouragement, the Buddha does travel forth. Uh, he wanders for about 49 days trying to formulate these teachings. And he ends up in Varanasi or, or Sarnath, which is a town just outside of Varanasi in northern India. And he runs into uh, his five ascetic friends there, the five people he was practicing with. And he brings his first teaching to the five ascetics. This is known as the first turning of the Dharma wheel. And I just want to unpack this slide here that you see on the screen. This is very common uh, iconography in any Buddhist temple. If you see a uh, a setup like this with a statue of the Buddha and five statues in front of him, or five, uh, maybe it's a painting. Anytime there's the Buddha and five disciples, that's a depiction of the first turning of the Dharma wheel. It's almost like the nativity scene in Christianity, if you know, you can, uh, you know, use that as a comparison. This, you would see this in, in, very, very, most temples in Thailand have it. I've seen it in Vietnam, Japan, uh, Korea, uh, uh, Myanmar. Most Buddhist temples uh, throughout Asia have this type of iconography. So really beautiful uh, uh, iconography there, uh, bringing forth the first teachings of the Buddha. So I just talk about that for a moment here. And this, by the way, this icon, by the way, this icon here, is a Dharma wheel, it's eight-spoked wheel, I think, it's one, three, four, five, six, seven, well, however many spokes. They're, they usually have eight spokes, but uh, this is a, uh, an icon of the Dharma wheel. And you're likely, if you go to any Buddhist temples, you're likely to see something similar to this. Uh, this was a photo that I took at a temple in Korea. Okay, in the first teaching of uh, the Buddha and the first turning of the Dharma, it's known as, uh, he talks about the middle way. And he says, I have found a middle way between two extremes. Uh, the extreme of self-mortification, which was as he was as an ascetic, mortifying the body, the mind and the heart. He says, that's not productive. It just leads to pain. It's village-like. You don't want to do that. Also, the other extreme is self-indulgence. That's not conducive to spiritual practice. You don't wanna do that either. He says, I have found a middle way which doesn't lead to two dead ends. That becomes one of the fundamental teachings of Buddhism uh, and continues to be the fundamental teaching of Buddhism even today uh, throughout Zen and the Mahayana Buddhist practices, Theravada Buddhist practices, they all uh, teach the middle way. He also gives the teachings on whatever arises, ceases. Again, uh, a fundamental teaching of Buddhism. 
and you see this coming up in all sorts of uh, spiritual practices nowadays. Most of the contemplative practices actually have uh, something similar to this. If it's of the nature of being born, it's of the nature of dying. This comes into uh, play very heavily in the Buddhist tradition uh, with feelings and emotions, being able to notice how our own Mara, referring back to uh, the legend underneath the Bodhi tree, how our own Mara arises, will stay for a while, and eventually fade. The teachings on conditioned arising, how everything's connected and interdependent on everything else. He ties it all together with, with the teachings on the Four Noble Truths, or as I like to refer to them as the Four Tasks, uh, because they're not only truths to be believed in, but they're tasks to be accomplished. And those are as follows. Uh, life contains suffering, and the task there is to embrace life, or to, uh, to fully comprehend suffering. The second one, uh, uh, life contains suffering. We suffer due to our emotional reactivity. We don't need to do that. So he points at that, that's what's causing our suffering is our emotional reactivity. The task there is to allow the emotions to do what they're going to do, to arise and pass as they will. The third is to behold the ceasing of our reactivity to learn what it feels like when our emotions arise and pass. Because that has a particular quality to it, a particular feeling arises, a kind of a relief. The Buddha called that our nirvanic moment. He pointed at those moments, he said, we can, we can behold that, understand what it feels like, learn what it feels like to allow things to arise and pass, and then cultivate a way of life which allows that to happen more and more easily, more and more frequently, and that's the Eightfold Path. Eightfold Path, really shorthand for bringing mindful awareness to all aspects of human life, of human endeavor. So that brings me to the end of my presentation today. Actually, I, you know, I do want to talk. I'm running out of time, but I want to talk a little bit about the, about the Buddha's passing because this is very important. Uh, so uh, indulge me here. So the Buddha taught for, uh, some historians say 40 years, some say 45 years. We know he was about 35 or 40 when he attained his enlightenment. And we know he taught until he was 80 years old. And so as an 80-year-old, uh, he's traveling through northern India with his attendant Ananda and several other attendants, uh, giving teachings at uh, various practice centers and ashrams that would have sprung up uh, as a result of the Buddha's teachings. So he would travel to, around, that was customary, to deliver these teachings as a way of inspiring uh, his practitioners and so forth. And so they're on the road and they stop in a place called Kushinagar in northern India. And they rest underneath a shade tree there and they're begging for their meal as was customary for monks to do at that time. 
and Siddhartha receives in his begging bowl some pork. Now, it's not clear whether the Buddha knew that the pork was spoiled or not. In some texts it says he knew that the pork was spoiled, in some texts it says he didn't. Really doesn't matter for this story. We do know he ate the pork and he grew very ill. And so a few hours pass and he pulls Ananda over and he says, Ananda, these are my last hours, let's make preparations. So they make a bed of flowers for the Buddha to lie on underneath that tree there. Some of the other uh, attendants go and summon uh, some of the Buddha's followers and students that would have been nearby to be with the Buddha at the time of his passing. And the Buddha, uh, I'm sorry, Ananda leans over the Buddha and he says, Buddha, you haven't appointed a successor. How should we proceed? And the Buddha says, I have shown you all a way. Be a lamp unto yourself. I have shown you all a way. Be a lamp unto yourself. This becomes one of the Buddha's primary teachings, a fundamental pillar of Buddhist thought and practice. Not holding on to this dogma, right? A way. Allow the teachings, welcome the teachings in and have them make sense for you in your life. Be a lamp unto yourself. And it's often this teaching, this final teaching that the Buddha gave that's pointed to by historians as to why Buddhism is allowed to change and morph and grow uh, as it enters different cultures worldwide. This is why Buddhism looks so different in Thailand than it does in Tibet and looks completely different, not completely different, but very different in Japan and Vietnam and in America and Europe. Because Buddhism, because of this phrase and this teaching, Buddhism is allowed to take the shape of the culture that it's being welcomed into. It doesn't ask the culture that it's being welcomed into to conform to it. Buddhism grows around the culture that's welcoming it in. Okay, that brings me to the end of my presentation today. For more uh, about uh, on this topic and uh, in regards to meditation, uh, please do visit my website, www.suchsweetthunder.org. I am hosting a loving kindness meditation retreat online uh, starting on January 3rd and running to February 4th. Uh, for more information on that, do visit the website and click on retreats and programs. Uh, thanks again for uh, watching this presentation. I love this story and I love these teachings so much and I hope you receive some benefit as well. Thanks again, bye. Mm -hmm.